Welcome, friends of The Other Side of Midnight. Richard C. Hoagland, The Other Side of Midnight. Tonight, we have an amazing show about partnering with the universe, partnering with the force for amazing synchronicities and successes. I'm your guest host tonight, Kinthea, and our guest is Barbara Honecker. And I want to say to all of you, if you're following on the page, you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, click on the banner, it'll take you to our show tonight, and right under the banner, you'll see the fast links that can take you straight to Barbara's items or to her bio. So uh, let's get started. I'm so excited. This is going to be a very fun show. Barbara Honiger has served as a high-level positions in the U.S. government, including White House policy analyst, special assistant to the assistant to the president, and director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice. Following her time in Washington for over a decade, she served as senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School the premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university of the Department of Defense. Her pioneering book, October Surprise, on the deep story behind the Iran side of the Iran-Contra scandal, subsequently confirmed by formally classified documents, led to a full subpoena power congressional reinvestigation funded at the level of the 911 commission since 911 miss honiger has been a leading researcher author and public speaker on the events of september 11th speaking at conferences and giving presentations in the us europe and canada she is the visionary behind the third beam spotlight that has become the icon of the 911 truth movement worldwide as well as the historic Boston Tea Party for 911 Truth, which was the catalyst for the and origin of the Tea Party. Ms. Honiger was also the strategic visionary for, for and played a central role in achieving the declassification and release of the famous 28 pages of the Joint House-Senate Intelligence Committee report on September 11th on the role of the Saudi Arabia in facilitating the alleged 911 hijackers, which led to the historic passage of the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, J-A-S-T-A, that removes sovereign immunity from any foreign government that perpetuates or facilitates terrorist attacks upon the U.S. citizens on U.S. soil, allowing for the first time in over 16 years the lawsuits of over 6,000 911 victims' family members and 9-11 survivors to finally move forward in the courts. As she says, In previous incarnation within this lifetime, Barbara earned the world's first ever graduate degree in consciousness studies and experimental parapsychology. Prior to that, her honors BA is from the Stanford University, and she earned master's level certification in national security decision making from the Naval War College. She has twice run for Congress from California's Central Coast District. Welcome, Barbara. (laughs) Good to have you back on the show. (laughs) Hi, Kinthea. I'm still going to run again to try to win that seat in Congress. (laughs) May it be so. May the force be with you. So, I mean, this is an amazing topic tonight, partnering with a force. Right. Like, I've had... I have to share with the audience that Barbara and I have had several conversations and I'm always struck with awe and wonder at the things going on in her life. Well, so and am I. The, ma- <laughs> the magical uh, synchronicities. And so I said, Barbara, we have to do a show on this. Everybody has to understand how to work with the force the way you do. 
That's right. So you've had some really amazing life experiences. Uh, some would call you Lady Luck, as one of your professors would say. Yes. And being the first ever uh, graduate degree in parapsychology and consciousness studies in the world, that's a brilliant, groundbreaking um, door opening window for so many people who have followed behind you to go after that degree. So uh, would you like to share a little bit more about how you actually, how did you get that degree? Did you go to them and say, Hey, (laughs) you should have a degree in this. I mean, like I never (laughs) heard of anyone starting a new degree in, in a college. How did that come about? Right. Well, well, in this case, I did not wake up one morning and uh, and decide that uh, that I needed to have a degree in parapsychology. Um, but from the time I was a small girl, and we're the the main part of this program tonight. We have a full three hours to go into these amazing events. I'm going to share with people actual life experiences that are so mind-boggling um, in their intricacy and their interconnectedness, and each one of them is amazing. So from the time I was a little girl, and I'll start with one of the examples from my childhood here in a minute. Um, okay. But from the time I was a small child, um, I had these experiences. They were they were both they were paranormal experiences in the way that you think about that in the academic world. Um, but mostly they were synchronicities, mind-blowing synchronicities, as you'll see. So I was already very interested in this. So at the time that I'm about to tell you how I learned of the John F. Kennedy University, first ever in the world fully accredited graduate degree program in consciousness studies and parapsychology. At the time that I was about to learn about this through this amazing synchronicity, not surprisingly, I was at Stanford University and I was a graduate student. It was called a graduate at large program. I got my undergraduate there in communication and, um, you know, journalism, communications, literature. And I stayed at Stanford for almost another decade as a graduate at large. And at the time that I learned the JFK Consciousness Studies and Parapsychology program, I was actually studying the neuropsychology of human and non-human primate communication, including, for instance, um, uh, knowing and uh, personally knowing Penny Patterson, who, of course, raised the amazing um, sign language talking uh, female gorilla, um, the amazing female talking uh, sign language talking gorilla, as well as others. So these were my colleagues. And another one of my colleagues at the time, uh, Dr. Peter Reynolds, um, was working with me under Dr. Carl Prebram, who was uh, the senior professor in the psychology department at Stanford, where I was working at the time. So I was always interested in my unusual experiences, but I knew that there wasn't any formal way to study them, okay? So as fate would have it, as I was working at Stanford University, um, I learned of a program, a a informal night class by Saul Paul Sirog, who is a self-taught, amazing uh, theoretical physicist. And he was teaching a course on quantum mechanics and consciousness in Berkeley. So once a week, I would drive from Stanford University in Palo Alto all the way to Berkeley just for this one night class. Well, so I learned about the JFK Consciousness Studies and Parapsychology program in a very paranormal way, appropriately enough. So while Mm -hmm. while I was at the Institute for the Study of Consciousness, where Saul Paul lived in the attic at the time, And at the end, uh, at a break in the class in quantum mechanics and consciousness, um, I needed to make a phone call. And so I asked if I, if there was a phone and he said, yeah, you can go and go into the office here and, uh, and uh, there's a phone on the desk. Well, I needed to write something down in the middle of this phone call and the light was not on in the room, but there was light coming in the window and there was what appeared to be a blank piece of paper close to the phone and pencil or a pen. So I wrote my notes on that. And um, at the end of the call, I folded it up, uh, put it in my purse or my pocket, completed the course, 
the class and went back to my apartment at Stanford. Well, when I got back and took it out of my purse, I opened it up and it fell on the floor. It turned over and it was the announcement for the first, for, for it was a recruitment for students for the first ever graduate degree, fully accredited graduate degree in the world, let alone the United States in consciousness studies. And, <laughs> and of course, I immediately called the next morning and became the first student. And I was also the very first graduate. And interestingly, because it was night school, it was uh, John F. Kennedy University, then in Orinda, California. It still exists. So it's I remember. Mm-hmm. Oh, you do. You do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it no longer has the parapsychology program per se as it was before, um, but um, it has related programs like transpersonal psychology and that kind of thing. But it was for working adults, and I was a working adult at the time. Uh, I was going to graduate school and working part time at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, which also is how I got to the White House. So there's a, there are synchronicities involved with that as well. But literally, um, it was this synchronistic event by which I learned of the program in consciousness studies and I was the first accepted student and the first graduate and I graduated from the program after uh, already being in the west wing of the white house my desk was almost literally over the oval office on the second floor of the west wing um, when I left my position and had to fly back um, to uh, Orinda California for the graduation ceremony and walked across the stage with Manley Hall, who was given the first honorary degree as I was given the first earned degree in consciousness studies and parapsychology. And that was in June 1981. So you were studying while you were in the White House and the university was in Orinda? You were going back no, and forth? And you doing- no, I started in around 1976 as I recall, um, I believe it was the fall of 1976. And because it was night school, so it wasn't full-time, it was part-time for all of the night school students, the, the adult mm-hmm. students, working adult students. Um, I completed all of my coursework and I completed my research, uh, but I still needed to write up my master's thesis. So I uh. did that at night at my desk over the Oval Office. <laughs> I completed that and then flew back to get my degree with Manley Hall. Oh, my gosh. I, I mean, when I listen to you talk about your life, it is peppered with all these amazing people. You know, Yuri Geller, Linus Pauling, Zahi Hawass, Ronald Reagan. What's going on here? I know. I mean, I feel like I feel like Forestina Gump, like I'm literally living. If you can imagine, a lot of your listeners probably have have seen the wonderful movie Forrest Gump where, where this, you know, little nondescript uh, Casper Milk Toast guy um, happened to be sitting on a bench when some amazing historic event happened, or he happened to be, you know, right next to the schoolhouse door when the little uh, African-American girl was finally allowed in. <laughs> and yeah. He was at all of these critical historical events. But imagine if the author or the scriptwriter of Forrest Gump had instead had Forrest Gump at each one of those points actually interacting with the world historic figure to make a difference, a positive difference in the world. That's what my life has been like. So, you know, this is what perked my interest, to make a difference. You spoke about missions, and I'm so curious as you, you know, you're, you're in your journey, you've left college, now you're in the Oval Office, and how did inspiration come to you? What, what's your next step? How did you move forward? How were you sensing what your place in the universe was, what you were called to do? Well, it's interesting. The answer to that question is you never know until you get your guidance or your mission. So um, what, what I've done in, prepar- in preparation for tonight's program is to actually make a list of maybe about 10 of the most Stunning. Some of the most stunning synchronicities in my life. Some of them appear minor. Others are major in terms of making a huge difference, even geopolitically in the world. Um, and th- the answer to your question is you don't know until you get your guidance. I literally can wake up in the morning and have a full-fledged mission that I'm to go on. And I'll tell you the hard part in life 
is waiting for those wonderful missions to be given to you. The, the well, boring part is just living your normal everyday life, waiting to wake up in the morning or at some point during your day to suddenly know with absolute certainty that you've received a cosmic uh, mission, like uh, your mission should you choose to accept it, but you don't mm -hmm. have to, and there won't be any negative consequence if you don't. We'll be sure and give you another one later. Um, but um, it's the hard part is waiting for the missions to appear. Um, so, so when you say you wake up in the morning, is this like a, a sense of knowing, or do you hear a voice, or do you see an image? How do you recognize you're getting your guidance? It's what I call um, direct knowing. Um, I think the ancients would have called it gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, it's simply direct knowing. There's no, in fact, I've told people I am so left hemisphere uh, in my normal everyday awake state that the only images or that I've ever had in my life is when my eyes are open and I'm looking at a flower or looking around the room. If if someone says, imagine a you know, a, a yellow square. I cannot do it. I oh. have absolutely no image imagination whatsoever in my normal everyday awake state. But obviously my right hemisphere is extremely active, but I'm not consciously aware of it in any, in any experiential sense. There's uh -huh. no sound. There's no images. I just know. And mm -hmm. the knowing is as clear as a bell. What I need to mm -hmm. do, what I mm -hmm. need to do. Um, and the knowing also does is directly related in some cases, but not all, to to a life goal that I've actually set for myself uh, as a conscious uh, normal every in my conscious normal everyday awake state. But what's exciting is to hear the actual experiences, and that's what I'd like right. to do. Yeah. Sure, I'm just curious. Did you set for yourself this goal as a child or a young adult or? No, I don't set the goals. They come to me. Well, you said that you that there was something that preceded all of them. Um, no, I, I I don't know where you got that okay. idea. Um, hmm. I, it's just as a child, as, as you'll see from some of these experiences that I want to mm -hmm. actually um, go into. Okay, uh, experiences speak for themselves. Um, I'll give you I'll give you the first example. It will give you an example. Okay. As a little child, as a very small child, um, I was very excited. Uh, I lived, we lived in the country, um, and uh, my mother and father decided it was a big, big farmhouse in the San Joaquin Valley in a little town called Grangeville by, not surprisingly, a Grange. Um, and I think the population of this little farm town was about 76. So I was 176 of the population. And... Um, so um, we lived in this big uh, two-story white farm, white wooden farmhouse with big uh, trees around it and a big lawns around it. Uh, but on either side were uh, were fields, uh, cornfields that were part of my grandmother's uh, property, about a thousand-acre ranch. And um, my parents decided that they wanted to make a patio, and I was very excited about this because they they brought somebody in and they poured the concrete, and when it when it congealed or hardened, then I knew that I would be able to skate on it. I really loved uh, roller skating. So my parents got me some roller skates. Now I was at most four years old, four or five years old. And I was so excited to get my first pair of roller skates. I had, I had skated as a little girl in a roller rink, but I didn't have my own skates. You would rent or lease your skates at the roller rink. So I got my first pair of little skates. And I remember so clearly going out and sitting and putting on my skates. And I was so excited when I, you know, pulled the, the shoestrings to, and to tie them. I was so excited and so anxious to get skating that I pulled too hard. And the shoestring on my left skate broke. And I knew that I couldn't skate with a broken shoestring and I didn't have another one. And I remember spontaneously holding the two ends in my hand of the shoestring. And I wouldn't call it praying because we didn't go to church. I hadn't gone to church yet. 
I was kicked out of the Episcopal Church at age six. There's a story behind that. <laughs> <laughs> how, saying, does six, how does a six-year-old get kicked out of church? Uh, because I, I, I told, I, I told in front of the other six-year-old children that my, that my daddy was better than Jesus Christ. I had no idea who Jesus Christ was at the time, and they would <laughs> to Sunday school. Um, uh, but anyway, so so I wasn't a religious person. I wouldn't call it praying. I was just a little child. But I wanted those. I wanted my shoestring to be whole again. I wanted it to be whole again. And I held the two ends in my hand and I squeezed as tight as my little hands could. And I'll never forget when I opened my hands, my shoestring was completely healed. It was a oh solid. My. Oh my gosh! So you and I, actually shifted reality, right well, before your eyes. I don't yep. know how it happened, but it happened, and I was so excited. But to me, that was one of the very first experiences I had, where I knew. See, to me, that was just the way the world was. I uh-huh. didn't know that that was unusual, or that it was. Oh right, to. sure. Okay. You were just a four-year-old. I was just a four or five-year-old. That was that was about a year before I was kicked out of the Episcopal Church. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, the shoestring went back together and I, you know, just, I kind of, I didn't even say I was grateful. It was just to me, it's a little child, the way things were. And then I, you know, was very careful tying up my shoestring and I skated and I had a wonderful time. Now I want to fast forward and I want to make, I want to make a point here about what I've learned about the amazing, paranormal, miraculous, synchronistic experiences, numinous experiences in my life, what I now know, and it's taken a lot of study of the records of my own life in diaries to realize this. It was one of the major findings of my research um, in the the world of parapsychology, which I have published. And that is that these amazing synchronistic experiences or numinous experiences throughout your life are all connected. But you can't see it until you've had more than one, in fact, quite a few, and then you look back over your life. So I'm going to give you another example. I'm going to fast forward now. That was when I was four or five years old. Now I'm going to fast forward to when I was a freshman or a sophomore. I believe I was a sophomore in high school. And I lived in Grangeville and Hanford High School, of which I was ended up the valedictorian two or three years later. Um, it was about five or six miles from our house out in the country. And in my sophomore year, um, my parents got me a clunky old car. It was a huge old Cadillac. It was as big as a tank. And uh, my father taught me how to drive it. And so I would drive into school, and the high school was out at 3 o'clock. So at almost exactly 3 o'clock or 3.05, I would be out to the car, and every single day I would drive, oh, about a quarter of a mile to a little mom-and-pop grocery store. There was a phone outside. I would call my mother and ask her what to get from the meat counter for dinner that night. I would take home fresh meat every night from the high school. So I can... I can be certain of the time that I was at the intersection between the high school and the mom and pop grocery store it was between 3.05 and 3.10 every afternoon. As I came up to the, to the intersection, so this, this is an event, these are linked events between age five or four or five and what are you in high school at, in sophomore year? What, what are you, 15 years old, 16 mm-hmm. years old, something like that. So 10 years later, so as I came up to the intersection between the high school and the, the little grocery store, something came over me. I went into a kind of a trance. I was, at the, I was the first at the intersection, and when I came back to consciousness, I didn't lose consciousness. I just went into another space. I can't even describe it because I don't have a memory of it. What I do have a memory of, it's all of the cars honking behind me, all of these, you know, souped up cars that like to, you know, go down Main Street with all of these testosterone, you know, teenage guys behind me, angry that they couldn't move because I was at 
the light. And what had happened is I had been in this other state through an entire green light. And oh my gosh. <laughs> until the next green light. So when I came came conscious again, it was a green light and I wasn't aware of it. And so I pulled into the little mom and pop grocery store and a couple of these cars behind me um, pulled in next to me and, and angrily, you know, raised their fists at me and told me what I'd done. That's the only reason I know that I sat through a whole green light oh. and red light. And when I came back into my normal everyday consciousness state, it was, pro- it was between 310 and 315. So I forgot about it. I called my mother. I got the meat from the meat market and the meat counter, and I went home. My father was a rancher, and he would come in around 6, 6, 15 at night. We'd usually have dinner around 7. That night at the dinner table, I had one sibling, a younger brother by three years, and my mother and father. At the dinner table that night, everything was different. My father was an, an incredibly outgoing, happy, uh, optimistic man. And this night he was silent. He would always say, what, you know, what happened to your day? He would always be very talkative during dinner. He was absolutely silent. And when he finally spoke, he said, he just started, everybody was quiet because we knew something was wrong. And he mm-hmm. finally, and he said, your father almost died today. Oh and my. of course, my mother and my brother and I said, what? Now, my brother was maybe 10 and I was 13 or he was 11 and I was 14. And we said, what? What happened? And my father was still obviously shaken. He explained that he was on the back of, it, it was a tractor uh, with a, Um, I'm not exactly sure what you call it. I think it's called a seeder. But his job, there was another man on the tractor, and and he was, um, they would trade off, and he was at the time um, perched on the seeder, which was um, behind the tractor, and it had huge blades that would turn and open the soil just before my father would pour the seeds in a kind of a upside down V bucket and the seeds would go into the newly opened soil. And while this, while he was balanced in front of this cedar and he had on his, his uh, leather work shoes that had the leather shoe strings that tie very high up to the top. And he said that he lost his balance and the, the tractor evidently went over a rock in front of him or something, but, but he lost his, started to lose his balance and started to fall towards the blades. Oh. And something pulled him back. He was about to fall into the blades when something pulled him back. And when he saw what it was that had pulled him back, one of his leather shoestrings had come untied and the knot at the end of it had caught in something behind him that was able to pull him back because of oh. the tension of the shoestring. That's so, amazing. And then I said, Daddy, what time did that happen? I'll bet I know. I'll bet it was a little bit after 3 o'clock. And he said, yes, it was. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So it took me years to remember the first shoestring mm-hmm. and then for the second shoestring. Now I'm going to jump ahead in time. Barbara, hold yes. on, dear. We're okay. at the bottom of the hour, so let's pick okay. up the story after the break. We're listening to Barbara Honecker, our guest tonight, and uh, it's about accessing the force. Thank you. 
Midnight. Richard C. Hoagland is uh, listening, I'm sure. I'm filling in for him. This is Kinthea, and our guest tonight is Barbara Honiger. The show is Partnering with the Force for Amazing Synchronicities and Successes. And we were just listening to an amazing event that happened in Barbara's life when she was a teenager and how her father was saved by one of those synchronicities. And Barbara... You were about to tell us some another event that happened as a sequence. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't realize for years that it was part of the sequence. But um, I'm going to jump forward now, and we'll we'll go back to to the amazing synchronicities that got synchronicities that got me into literally dropped uh, into the West Wing of the White House, right over the Oval Office. It's it's an amazing story, which is separate from what I'm about to tell you, but. But if you move forward in my life to when I was sitting at my desk um, over the Oval Office on the second floor of the West Wing of the White House, and this is in 1981, early 1981, um, uh, Reagan had uh, taken the oath of office on January 20th of 1981, and um, what happened was, is as, let's see, that was January 20th, so... Uh, we're talking March, about two months later. Uh, in fact, almost exactly two months later. Two months minus two days later, uh, uh, the uh, March 17th and 18th of 1981. And I'm sitting at my desk uh, in the, uh, above, the, above the Oval Office in the White House. And um, what happens is uh, I get a call from my mother. Um, early in the morning on the 18th of March, 1981, uh, telling me that my father has just died. Oh. Now, remember that the sequence prior, that just before the break, um, was how my father had been saved by a miracle. Um, it's what re- a religious person would call a miracle. It's what I call um, the action of the force. Um, but in any case, um, it, it had to do with my father. And so if you fast forward in my life, I'm now 33 years old and I'm in the White House. And my mother calls me to tell me that my father died that morning, stepping out of the shower that, that he died in her arms in our upstairs bathroom in Carmel, California. And of course, my first, my first thought was, mom, are you okay? She said she was. And of course, I flew back. Um, to be at my father's memorial service. And when I went back to the White House in about two or three days, because, you know, I took my job very seriously. When I got back to the White House, one of my closest friends, his name was Kevin, 
Uh, he was one of the top three aides. I was one of the top three aides to the chief domestic policy advisor, Dr. Martin Anderson, and Kevin was another one. And Kevin came to my desk. And by the way, when I got back to my desk, there must have been a dozen bouquets of a dozen roses each on my desk and on my windowsill. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> no room on your desk. There was no room for anything on my desk or my windowsill above my desk. And um, and they were from well-wishers in the White House, including from the president, from Elizabeth, mm-hmm. from the vice president. Mm-hmm. I was very well known there. And mm-hmm. so, so Kevin came to my desk. And uh, he wanted to see the flowers. He'd heard about them. And he, he wanted to uh, to go to lunch. So he went to lunch in the White House nest late um, so that he, he wanted to talk to me very privately. And um, so when we went to lunch right after the first day that I got back, um, when we were in the White House nest and they'd taken our order and we were alone, Kevin was very nervous. And uh, he said, I have to tell you something. I'm, I'm moved to tell you something, and I don't know what it means. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, I've, I've, I, I have had a guidance. I've had a knowing that I'm supposed to share with you that there's a relationship between your father's death and, uh, oh, excuse me, excuse me. I've got my timing off. Um, my father died on the 18th of, of um, March, and then I, you need to fast forward uh, not very long to the Reagan assassination attempt day. Okay. And Reagan had miraculously survived. That's, that's where this happened. And it was after Reagan had miraculously survived that Kevin came to my desk and, and took me down to lunch to the, to the White House nest. And it was it was a day or two after Reagan had um, had survived, and Kevin said to me, "I'm moved to tell you that I just know, and I don't know what it means or how I know, but I'm supposed to tell you that there's a link between your father's death and Reagan's survival." <clears throat> now, this really surprised me. I hadn't I hadn't considered that possibility before. He said that to me. But the moment he said it to me, I started putting two and two together. Because, because I'm going to go back now, a couple of days before that, to the day of the attempt on Reagan's life. And the day on the attempt on Reagan's life, I had had a previous engagement to have lunch, not far from the White House, at a light kind of a 50s, 1950s diner, a really cute place, um, with the person who I met at the Hoover Institution, where I was before I went to the White House. And in the middle of that lunch, just like when I had been in the car and went into a different state of consciousness, where I wasn't aware, I didn't lose consciousness, but I wasn't aware of what happened. The same thing happened when I was sitting on the stool in the 1950s diner, literally just before and as Reagan was shot. And the, <clears throat> the man I was having lunch with told me after the fact that I sp- started spinning on my stool. It was one of those old 1950 diners where the stool you were on could turn around. Oh, those are fun. <laughs> they're fun. You know, a kid would do that, you know, but not a yeah. 33 right. years old, right? He said, I started to spin on my chair. And and when I stopped spinning, I do, I, I don't remember the spinning, but he said, when I stopped spinning, and I do remember this, um, I said, I have to go. I have to get back to my desk. I have to get back to my desk. I don't know why. And I left him. I left him. Uh, There wasn't any way I was going to stay in the diner. And I literally ran across Lafayette Park. I took off my heels and I ran across the park and I ran up to the guard gate and showed my ID. And I ran into the West Wing of the White House and up the stairs and fell into my chair 
just as the door opened and the chief domestic policy advisor, Dr. Anderson, opened the door. Literally, I had been at my desk for 10 seconds. The door opens and Martin Anderson says, come in. He whispers to me, come in, close the door, don't say a word. And I did. He had me sit down. He sat behind his desk. He had me sit down and he said, Reagan has been shot. I'm going down to the situation room. I'm going to put you in charge, turn on the television, and I'll be back and have everybody else from the staff come into this room and close the door. And I will keep you posted. I'll come up periodically from the situation room. Don't tell anyone else until they're in the room. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And it wasn't long before Marty Anderson came back. We were all gathered around the television. I think we were watching CNN. And of course, by then, the world knew that Reagan and Jim Brady, the communications director, White House communications director, and one of the Secret Service officers who had been guarding Reagan had been shot. And that they were in the hospital. Their lives were hopefully being saved. So after about 20 minutes, Martin Anderson, the chief domestic policy advisor, who was our boss, opens the door, shuts it behind him. He's ashen-faced, and he says, Jim Brady has died. And I was sitting in Martin's chair. He had instructed me to. And I was sitting in his chair behind his desk, which was closest to the TV screen. I was to take careful notes and report to him when he came back up to the room, which I did. But when he said, Jim Brady has just died on the operating table, we all love Jim Brady. Um, that whatever it is came over me again, and I looked into Martin's eyes, and I heard myself say, no, he's not dead. He'll be back. Really? Yes, and Martin, now Martin Anderson was not someone that you would contradict, especially in front of his staff. Right. And the very very first, I mean, that, that was a firing, something that you could be fired for. But it wasn't it wasn't my normal everyday awake consciousness self who said that to him either. Mm-hmm. And but he started, I could tell from his expression, he started to get angry at me in front of everyone, but then something came over him and he we locked eyes and he said, Oh, all right, I'll go check. <laughs> <laughs> And he turned around and left. And amazingly, about 10 minutes later, I will never forget this moment. Martin Anderson came in the door again, closed the door. He was ecstatic. He could barely speak. He said, Jim Brady is alive. (laughs) And we all wept. We screamed with joy. We wept. Okay. Now, we didn't know if Reagan was going to make it yet. So Marty goes back down to the to the situation room, and uh, a, a bit later he comes back up, and he lets us know that Reagan is going to survive. He's going to survive, and it was an amazing moment for all of us. And then Marty said, "We called him Marty, Marty Anderson." He said, "Everybody, go home." There's nothing else you can do. Just go home. I'm going to go home. I'm going to keep watching the television. There's nothing more any of us could do. Just go home. Come in tomorrow morning. Well, I didn't go home. Something said, don't go home. Everyone else went home. I sat at my desk. And it wasn't long after everyone else left that the phone rang. Now, Dr. Anderson and I got phone calls on his desk when he wasn't in his office. So I didn't know if it was a call for him or for me. It was a call for me. And it was a call from Dr. Jaffe, who was a physician. And he was a kind of very much interested in my work in parapsychology. And he wanted, he, we had made an appointment to have dinner that night, as fate would have it. Previously, we'd made the appointment. He was calling to remind me of the dinner and wanted to know if I still wanted to do it, given everything that had happened. And I said, oh, absolutely, yes, I do. So he said, all right, I'll meet you around six, I'll meet you around 530 uh, out by the gate on Pennsylvania Avenue. So when I went out there, sure enough, Dr. Jaffe was waiting in his little VW bug for me. 
And as I got into the car, as I got into the car and we started to go towards whatever restaurant he had chosen, I suddenly remembered and it came over me. It was that other state again. It suddenly came over me. I said, oh, no, you have to go to the printing, to the printing company because I have to get my cards. I have to get the calling cards. And he said, okay, well, where is that? And I told him where it was. And so we drove a few blocks uh, to a printing press house. And I went in. They, I knew that they closed at 6 o'clock. It was about 5.30. And I went in and I paid for my cards. And I'd forgotten what the cards were. I'd forgotten what they were. But something came over me said, you've got to get the cards. You've got to get the cards. And as I was, I said, okay, let's go to the restaurant now. And as I opened the little bag, and I think I'd ordered 250 cards in a single box, as I, you know, went in the bag to to see, I should have probably looked in the box to make sure they were what I'd ordered when I was there, but I'd gotten back in the car first. So when, when we were starting to drive to the restaurant, I opened the little box, and the top card, I remembered what the cards were. Now I need to go back in time a few months just a few months, when Reagan has won the election and we go to the transition and then we have the inauguration events. The inauguration events are the night, either the night before or the night of January 20th, 1981. So we're just going back about two months in time now. And my mother wanted to come to Washington, D.C., to celebrate with me the inauguration of Ronald Reagan. So she flew in. I picked her up at the airport, Reagan Airport. It wasn't Reagan Airport then. It was National Airport. And we went to a hotel. She got a a hotel in Washington, D.C. We went to her room. I had a little house then in Arlington, Virginia. But I went to her room to get her things together and make arrangements. I think we went out to dinner. My mother went into the bathroom. So we're talking mid-January of 1981. My mother went into the bathroom to get ready to go to dinner in the hotel downstairs. And I looked around to see if there was a television, to see if there was, if I could see the news. I opened the wooden doors of the, you know, cabinet that had the big TV screen in it and turned on the television. Literally, the moment the TV popped on, it takes a second for it to pop on. Remember, this is 1981, where you have to actually press the button on the TV. There was no remote control, at least in that room. Then. And the they moment, wanted to warm up. <laughs> the yeah, TV had to warm up. And then it suddenly pops on. The moment it pops on, my mother's in the bathroom, the moment the image first pops on the screen, the entire screen is filled with a white screen with black capital letters with the word God, G-O-D, filling the screen. What? In a moment, it's clear why that happens. It's that very moment in the movie, Oh God, where the actor who is actually God but is in the form of a human being, Mm -hmm. where he shows someone his calling card and it says God. Oh, right. (laughs) And and suddenly it takes up the whole screen, even in a movie theater, for a split second. And that's the first image you see on the TV. (laughs) Now, guess this. The moment that image appears on the screen, I get a clear guidance. I follow my guidances. I get a clear guidance. Make calling cards just like this. So those were the cards that I picked up right after Reagan was shot and had We knew that he was going to live. And Jim Brady, by the way, came back to life after being flatlined for 45 minutes. 45 minutes. 45 minutes, according to what Martin Anderson told us in the room. 
So I, I open the little box, and then I remember what the cards were. And the moment I see them, it comes over me again, and I tell Dr. Jaffe, I said, Dr. Jaffe, take me back. I have to go back to the White House. Take me back to the White House. Then we'll go to dinner. You have to go right back to the White House. So he turns around, goes back to the gate. He stays there for me. He said, I'll be here. Just, he said, take your time. I'll be here. I didn't show him the cards, not yet. And I went back through the gate, showed my ID, went into the White House. All the lights were out on the second floor. I went around to every single desk of all of my colleagues. And I put a God card. Oh, how <laughs> wonderful. And I went down to the first floor where the Oval Office is. And I started going around to the offices in that in the main floor. And I put God cards in the center long drawer in every single desk. The next to the last stop was Jim Brady's office. I'll never forget that moment where I walked into his office, which was right up the hall from the Oval Office, by the way. And there was lights. All the lights were out uh, in the office, but the light was streaming in from the outdoor post lamps in the Mm -hmm. Rose Garden. And in that kind of dusky light, I walked reverently around to Jim Brady's desk. And slowly pulled open his long center drawer. And believe it or not, in front of me was a photograph of Jim Brady and myself. What? And on top of that photograph, I put the God card face up and closed the door. I I was obviously very important to Jim Brady, and I didn't even know it until that moment. And so then... I walked down to the Oval Office, which is right up the hall, up Mm -hmm. a little Outside the Oval Office every day, there's a small desk, at least there was then when I worked there, where uh, a fully uniformed Marine officer sits. The door to the Oval Office was open as I approached his desk. I could see through the door to the empty desk just sitting there waiting for Reagan to return. And as I walked up to this man, he stood up at attention. And I handed him a card, face up. I didn't, I was about to say, would you please put this, or let me put it, in the Oval Office desk the center drawer. But I didn't even have to. He took that card. He looked at it. A tear came down his cheek. He saluted. He left his desk and walked slowly, like marching, to the Oval Office desk, turned around, saluted again, Opened the drawer and put the card face in. Oh my gosh, what a great story. What a great and, event. Yes. And I just stood there. He, and then he put his hands down and he just stood there. And I knew that everything was going to be okay. I knew that Reagan would come back and I knew that he would see the God card. Now, what's interesting is that. After Reagan came back, and I will never forget that day, it took a few weeks for him to recover enough to return to the White House. And the the moment when he came back, he was brought back with Nancy in Marine Corps One at night, in the dark, with the spotlights showing onto the South Lawn. And every single one of the still living presidents were lined up. For him to walk past. Wow. That's I still have so that beautiful. House photographer. Mm. Reagan got back. We know this after the fact because he talked about it. He gave interviews um, with the White House press people. When mm-hmm. he got back to the White House, 
one of the first things he did was to go to the Oval Office. And you know that he opened that drawer. Yes. Well, right afterwards, right afterwards, he told, I can't remember which reporter he told it to, but it was written up, that he said that after he survived the assassination attempt, he, he dedicated every moment of the rest of his life to God, is what he said. Mm. Now, here's the two more parts to the end of this story, the way it, it closes the loop. So I'm now going to go back to this moment in the White House Mint. A few days after, I put the God cards in everybody's desk, and that included in Kevin's desk. And okay. This is, this is Kevin who asked me to have lunch with him in the White House mm-hmm. Mint. And Kevin says to me, I don't know why, but I'm supposed to tell you that I have been told that I just know that your father's death is linked to Reagan's survival. Now, how that could occur, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but everything taken together of what I've told you leads me to believe that the experience at the intersection with my father in the shoestring, that my father was given extra time. And I should also tell you that the night before my father died, I was living in, alone in Arlington, Virginia, in a house near Washington, D.C. And that night, before my mother called me early in the morning, that night I was awakened from a deep sleep and I went downstairs I was moved to go downstairs and put my hands on the only object that my father had made with his hands for me. And Mm. it was a beautiful chopping block, you know, like an island that you would have in your kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I went downstairs and I put my hands on this. I was half awake and half asleep. And something in me moved me to say, take me instead. I didn't know what that meant. But I heard myself say, take me instead. But whatever the force is, decided not to take me instead. Mm -hmm. And I think that has to do with something, some transaction that happened at the intersection when I was 13 or 14 years old. Mm -hmm. The experience of my father in the history. So now I'm going to move ahead in time. And Reagan has died and I watch every single minute on live on television of his memorial service at the Reagan National with the Reagan Library. Okay. And as I watch that event and I watch Nancy lean over his coffin before it lowered, I'm moved to send her one of the God cards. Now, I wasn't given an instruction or a guidance as to how to do that or when, but something I just knew that bide your time and it will be clear how to give her the God card. Well, that's Barbara. Happened. Yes. We are coming up at the top of the hour. So okay. I think I like to catch that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Richard C. Hoagland's The Other Side of Midnight. The show tonight is partnering with The Force for amazing synchronicities and successes. And our guest tonight is Barbara Honiger. And I am like just in a state, a day's state listening to these awesome stories. We'll return. Just imagine what it's like to live them.
staring to hyperdimensional. One thing you'll find is essential is our club. 19.5 It's a hyperdimensional storage case A treasure trove of outer space Our club 19.5 All the data we've accumulated The final hit Titled and collated Why don't you just Drop on by And give Our club a try If you're in The hyperdimensional You'll find Our credentials Are fine Club 19.5 